This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome one and all to literary treks episode number 233 this is the root of all rage well no not this show but that is the book we're going to review on today's episode of literary treks it's the prometheus book number two the root of all rage and i'm bruce gibson i'm just one of your hosts and i cannot do this alone not at all. Believe me, if we even tried to have me do this by myself, you wouldn't even get this far. So I'm going to bring in my trusty co-host who saves me on every episode, Dan Gunther. Well, I don't know about all that, but uh, I'm definitely your co-host. <laughs> <laughs> you save me through every episode. Uh, I don't know. I think you do pretty well by yourself, but not to well, worry. We're not going to have to test that out. So I'm here. Uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. You doing well? Doing well. Um, busy at work, long days, but man, I tell you, when the end of the day comes and I know I'm going to come on here and talk about Star Trek books, uh, it just makes the day so much better. <laughs> I just want everybody to know that when we record this, it's on a weeknight and it's always, you know, in the evening. So we've gone through work and we come on the show before we start recording. We both basically look at each other and sigh and go, Oh, yeah, it's been a rough day. Yeah, I'm tired. And then all of a sudden we start thinking about what we're about to do and it's the show. And all of a sudden we get our energy mm -hmm. back. It's so true. Tonight, I think both of us just really low energy, really bagged. And then we started just doing the, the pre-show banter that we do, just kind of talking about how things are going and, you know, rough stuff that we liked about the comic we're going to talk about in the book and, you know, plans for other stuff to do with Star Trek and that energy level just creeps up and creeps up. And then right before we, we hit record, we realize we're just, you know, on top of the world and giddy and happy and, ah, oh man, it's, it's just such a good feeling. 
I love it. I, I just, it, this sounds fake and stuff, but I just, it's genuine. Like I, I absolutely <laughs> love this and I just love the energy that it gives me. It's so great. <laughs> yes. That is not fake. That's exactly how it is. And just so you know, right before we start recording, I was telling Dan that uh, the comic we're about to review here at the beginning of the show is Star Trek Discovery, The Light of Kalos. It's issue number four. And I had read this a couple of weeks ago and I had to reread it again tonight. So it was fresh in my mind and I read it out loud through doing all the Klingon voices of <laughs> Takuvma <laughs> and Voke and all that. And uh, that that was a lot of fun. If you ever read this, do it like that. Out, read it out loud. Make sure people aren't around to look at you funny. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, you didn't have the camera and the mic on when you did this because I would have loved to have seen that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, unfortunately I didn't. But uh, before we get to the comic, I just want to mention real quick, we did get an iTunes review. We're going to read that at the end of the show. And uh, it may be the last time we get a good (laughs) iTunes review after this episode. I don't know. Maybe you better do some of those voices. Get. I don't know if that would help us or hurt us. <laughs> well, let's go right into this comic. So again, it's issue number four, The Light of Kalis. And this is the last issue of this four-issue series. And uh, this is about the Klingons, about Voke and Takuvma and Laurel. And it's the backstory. It's kind of a prequel to the TV series of Discovery. And in this final issue, we see Laurel and Voke continuing to talk to one another where Laurel's telling the backstory of Takuvma. And that's essentially what most of this these four issues are about, is about Takuvma as a child and as he grows into a man. I don't know. Would he be offended if I called him a man? I don't know because he's a Klingon. But anyway, he grows into a full Klingon and uh, he is looking for the light of Kalis, therefore the title of the series and uh, also known as the beacon of Kalis. And so she's been telling Voke the whole story about uh, Takuvma. And that's when I would start reading, you know, where, you know, like Voke is like, you see, Takuvma began to doubt himself. And Laurel's like, you refuse to believe that Tukuvma would ever show weakness, Volk. So that's what I was doing out loud for the whole issue. Just that was a quick I love preview. it. <laughs> that's so great. Thank you so much. I'm so happy. <laughs> now you know why Dan was giddy. <laughs> Excellent. But um, but let's get serious now. Yeah, you know, we're joking around, <laughs> but um I First of all, I really have enjoyed this series. It's very well written, and it really gives us some good uh, depth into Takuvma. And the way this issue starts off, after Laurel starts to finish the story of Takuvma, Takuvma this is uh, has discovered a beacon from the Federation. It's a communications relay, what we've seen in the series, and he's questioning why it's there and so close to Klingon space. And of course, he's under the impression that the Federation is about to invade the Klingons and uh, try to take over all of the galaxy. And the Klingons must unite and stand together with all the houses together. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, he needs to find the beacon of Kalis. And so he's on the search to do that, while at the same time, he's freeing Klingon slaves and having them join his cause. We've got some naked Klingons, as we did in a previous <laughs> issue yep, again. Yeah, we get more Klingon, but... but uh, <laughs> <laughs> more Klingon, but we get a severed Klingon head. 
there's quite a lot of interesting violence for the uh, for a couple of pages and then the main story of this issue then takes place on Kronos where they're in the high council where there's debate about what Kalis is doing because all of a sudden there are stories and myths I'm sorry not about Kalis but there's stories and myths about Takuvma and uh, going around to the different houses and different Klingon planets and gathering people behind him as if he wants to be the next Kalis. But that's not what he's trying to do. He's just trying to unite all the houses together to stand in front of the Federation. And of course, a Klingon like Cole does not believe that. He thinks that all Takuvma is trying to do is be the next Kalis and take over the Empire. And so he's combative about Takuvma's actions in the High Council, so on and so forth. And I'm talking too much about this at this point. So, Dan, what what do you have to add to that, or what are your thoughts so far about this issue? Well, I, I find this stuff on Kronos here really interesting. I didn't get the impression from the TV show that Takuvma had this large a following that we see here. So outside of the council chambers, we see kind of the uh, the population of Kronos, or at least a good number of people kind of chanting his name and, uh, you know, singing his praises and stuff. And I thought that was really interesting. And I'm not saying it doesn't fit, not at all. I'm just, you know, it it adds another layer, I think, on a rewatch of those first two episodes of Discovery to know that he has this backing of all of these people and, you know, that he has really become this charismatic leader on Kronos. I thought that was really interesting and, and not something that I had... Uh, really associated with his character. So that part came as a bit of a surprise to me. Um, and yeah, like I said, I think it adds another layer to the character. Yeah, I agree. I didn't, I never expected as if there's all these Klingons, thousands or, you know, even millions of Klingons that are possibly behind Takuvma as he's out into space then. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, he has a huge crowd outside of the chamber and uh, but we, I also enjoyed the tie in then with his sister because his sister married into another house and had killed his brothers. Mm-hmm. And now she's saying she stands behind him because he's got all these people uh, standing behind him and he turns away from her. And he, he says, you know, I'm done with you. I no longer have a sister. Mm-hmm. And he walks away from her. So it kind of shows that, you know, even though he has support of other Klingons, those he's been close to he's abandoned mm-hmm. because they never believed in him. Yeah, definitely. And it, it also adds, I think another dimension to how the other Klingons, like the other powerful Klingons see him in, uh, in the discovery episodes, I was kind of under the impression that they were like, who is this guy? Why do you call us? What's going on? But, you know, here we see like Cole, for example, knows who Takuvma is and sees him as a threat and knows that he's or figures that he's trying to amass power for himself. And so, you know, that that adds another um, another bit of intrigue to Cole's role in the series on Discovery as well. And there's since the story's being told by Laurel to Voke. Vokes starts to get upset because he's like, why hasn't Takuvma told us about, you know, certain things about himself and, and how he got everybody here on board. And, and, uh, there was this beacon that was created for, uh, Voke to use. And I mean, it's not for Voke for, uh, 
Takuma to mm-hmm. use. Um, and so I guess the Vogue was under the impression that that Takuma found the light of Kalis, but he didn't really because he learned that he himself was the light of Kalis. And so Vogue is questioning that, saying he lied to us. He never did find the light of Kalis. And Laurel's like, no, he did because everything that he did once he identified himself as being that beacon, that light, has led to this moment. Mm-hmm. And so what he did was the right thing. Yeah. And that to me was the real like twist of the story was that he didn't just find this, the light of Kalis, but that it was built for him. Like you said, I thought that was really interesting. And this, that in and of, a, uh, in and of itself kind of elevates this story to me as, as really adding something to those first two episodes. And after watching this, I really actually want to go back and watch them again uh, and and just imagine because basically this comic ends moments before I think basically Burnham sets foot on this beacon because Takovma is sending the guy out right now to go light it, you know. So it's 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 seconds before the main you know event that kicks off Star Trek Discovery takes place. So. It's really cool and I think really adds a lot to that story. Yeah, the issue ends with saying the beginning, not the end, mm-hmm. not to be continued, the beginning, meaning it's just the beginning of Discovery going into that episode. So yeah, I I really enjoyed this whole series. I think it's one of the stronger series of uh, Star Trek comics we've had in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed definitely on that one. Um, I think... Right now, the Succession series is really, uh, really piquing my curiosity in much the same way. And I'm, it's hard to choose between the two of these, which I like better. And I guess we'll see when that series is done. But this one ended on a really strong note. I agree. So thumbs up on The Light of Kalis. If you haven't read these, uh, we suggest finding them or getting the uh, trade paper back when it comes out and uh, check them out. They're really good. If you love discovery, this is a must read. Definitely. (laughs) All right. So let's go to the feature and uh, we'll talk some more Star Trek. Sounds good. (laughs) So in today's feature, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, we're talking about book number two in the Prometheus series. It's called The Root of All Rage, and it's written by the authors. And I'm going to try my best to get this right here. Bernard Perplees and Christian Humberg. And they, uh, this was first written in German and uh, published in Germany. Uh, what? It's been a couple of years. It's been a while. I think so, yeah. And uh, yeah. And so now it's uh, been re released in English by Titan Books. And so we reviewed the first book uh, a while ago when it came out. Uh, probably what? It was December, I think it was. I think so, yeah. Yep. Of 2017. And now we're reading. Uh, book number two here. And um, this picks up where the other book left off, where we have the Federation and the Klingon Empire working together to identify why there's this planet and this race that have have been really been aggressive and blowing up their star bases and colonies and such and attacking the Federation and the Klingon empire. And we find out it's, they're doing this because they believe that you should basically stay home, that you shouldn't be venturing out into space and 
intertwining yourself with other races and other species that, you know, basically home is where the heart is. So just kind of stay there. <laughs> so, but, um, but they had been members of the Federation. Weren't, I think they're members of the Federation, right? I don't think that the Renau are, no. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's they're called the Renau. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking either, or they had an association with them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were an unknown race. But, uh, but they were at least friendly up until this point. So there's something going on where people are getting, you know, just very aggressive and, and, and there's this radiation that the uh, Federation, the Klingon Empire are looking to identify that is causing uh, the Renau to be very aggressive and even themselves being aggressive. So this is in the 24th century when the Federation and Klingon Empire get along really well. However, now, you know, they're kind of fighting each other. And so, you know, as Dan put in the notes, Star Trek asks us to accept that the Federation works alongside the Empire, whose primary model of advancement for centuries has been conquering and expanding. And do we think this works? So, Dan, does it work? This is something that I I feel like it's one of those things in Star Trek that you kind of have to just say, oh, okay, yeah. But like in reality, I find it really hard to believe that the Klingon Empire that relies on conquering and expanding that way generally and also doesn't have a lot of the same values as the Federation as far as, you know, treatment of other species and that sort of thing. I have a really hard time believing that they would work side to side by side on a regular basis really well. And I mean, maybe that's some of my own prejudice showing, I'm not sure, (laughs) but, you know, even without the influence of this radiation in this book, you know, the, the Federation and the Klingon empire have very different views. And I feel like joint cooperation on missions like this would be really difficult. I, I don't know. That's just always kind of been my impression. And depending on who's writing the episode or where in time something takes place in Star Trek, I feel like different writers have different ideas of how close the Federation and the Klingons are in the first few seasons of TNG. It feels like they're very, very close allies and almost part of the Federation kind of thing. But then later on, it seems like maybe they're not and they're a little bit more distanced. So, you know, I feel like if you really dug in deep, it would be really hard to have these two crews work together uh, on a mission like this. I don't know. Do you feel kind of the same way or, or how do you see that? I almost feel that in this book is exactly what you just described. At times it feels like they're working well together and times that they're not. And there's certain Klingons that seem to work better than others with the Federation crew or with our uh, Enterprise crew. I mean, not the Enterprise, Prometheus crew. <laughs> But, um, and the reason I just said Enterprise is because I'm thinking about like TNG and, and, you know, Deep Space Nine and such. But when I was reading this book, I kept having to remind myself this, this takes place in the 24th century Mm -hmm. because Krom is the captain of the Klingon ship and he's very young and he's very arrogant and he seems to always, he's like the typical Klingon. He's just like, you know, I don't need you Federation people. I don't need you Captain Adams, blah, blah, blah. We should just do it the Klingon way. That's how it should be done. Uh, You know, and all that. But then his first officer is very much of the, 
no, we need to work together. We need to, you know, figure out what's going on. It seems to be like the Klingon and the anti-Klingon on the ship, the, the yin and the yang of Klingons <laughs> with each other. Yeah. And it almost felt like very much of like Krug in some manners when I think of Krom. And so that's why I keep thinking 23rd century when I'm reading then I keep reminding myself, oh no, the Klingon and the Empire and the Federation are friendly. So it makes sense that they would work together, but it would not necessarily be easy. I mean, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but again, it feels like it's certain members of the Klingon Empire that, that can work with the Federation and some that have a difficult time working with the Federation. So I almost feel like there's a good balance there, Mm -hmm. at least for me when I read it. Yeah. And there are, I mean, Klingons aren't a monolithic species as, as much as they've been shown that to be that in Star Trek, you know, I I feel like sometimes on the show and in movies, we see only one facet of a species or race, which is kind of a bit of a failing on, on writing in my opinion. And other times you get this more varied look at people and you really come to understand, no, Klingons are individuals. They're not just one thing. So like you say, the Bortus' first officer, Lemka, is an example of, you know, this more reasonable Klingon. <laughs> Even that sounds kind of racist there, but, you know, oh, she's, she's one of the good Klingons. But, you know, you've got Martok as well, who... You know, even though in this book he has to bend to the political will of the high council, you know, in order to not risk losing his position, it seems anyway to me, um, he still believes in working with the Federation and being a more reasonable uh, individual. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I think. Do you think the author should have addressed this book differently? With the Klingons? How would you have done it differently? I don't know, because it's it's a tough position because we do have to accept that the Federation and the Klingons are allies at this point. And it's not just that they have a ceasefire and not just that they're not at war, but they're called allies. So the writer does have to work within what's been established. And I do have to say, I think they did a really good job of, like I said, making individual Klingons um, there are a bunch of very interesting characters on the Klingon side. We have also the uh, the security officer aboard the Bortos, uh, whose name is, as I flip to the little cheat sheet glossary at the back of the book. Yeah, it's great because there's a glossary at the back with all the <laughs> crew members of both ships. Exactly. Um, yeah, the com- Lieutenant Commander Ruth, R-O-O-T-H, yes. is the security chief. And he's another one who's very reasonable. He's kind of this older, wiser Klingon. And, you know, and that's one of the great things in this book, too, is they delve into the characters of the Klingons, not just the Federation people. And we learn that, you know, in his youth, he was a bit more um, impulsive and aggressive but in his older years, he's kind of learned to temper that and learned to work with others and be, you know, um, not quite as quick to pull his disruptor and instead, you know, be a bit more thoughtful type of security officer. So, you know, that's kind of neat that we get that deep exploration of these characters as well. So I think it's really to the author's credit that they do have a bunch of these characters that uh, really work well here. Yeah, and I think they do work well because some of them feel like more of that 24th century Klingons and some of them feel like they're 
second, 23rd century <laughs> Klingons in a sense. Some are living in the past. I, 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 well, that's not really even fair to say because, you know, Klingons are Klingons no matter what century, where your allies are not. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, they know how to work with those that they need to work with, but only so far. And that's what we find out, even in the first novel, that they're annoyed to a point where the Federation isn't moving fast enough and is trying to figure things out and taking their time to think things through instead of, no, just go in there and take care of this now with force instead of keep debating, well, are they really attacking our star bases? Is it really this group? Is it really the whole race? We need to figure this out more. And the Klingons have the opinion of, no, you know, we, we can't just sit around waiting and more people get killed. We need to address this and take care of it now. And I kind of like, that because in a lot of ways is the federation sometimes too passive do they Mm. take too much time trying to figure things out and we see people dying as they're trying to identify what really is happening and maybe the klingons are right in this case and even martok is in a position of trying to figure out you know are should we wait for the federation and some at one point he eventually tells crom just go take care of what you need to take care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, uh, this really, I think drives at the heart of what this book is speaking about and what it's trying to talk about because the Renau, like the Klingons, they're not a monolithic species either. And it's kind of this element within their society, this terrorist group that calls itself the purifying flame. And it's not every member of the species who's, uh, you know, goal is to attack the Federation and the Klingons and the other p- major powers. It's just this group. And the tactics that the Klingons take, generally speaking, their policy of kind of adopting ever increasingly aggressive stances towards the Renau, those are the things that really embitter people. And to my mind, would push more people into the camp of the Purifying Flame and engender more sympathy to their cause and basically recruit new followers. And I think this is something that, you know, I don't want to get too uh, controversial here, but, you know, this is something we see in the real world. You know, there's a lot of people that uh, maybe wouldn't necessarily uh, become terrorists, but because they live under a regime that, um, you know, puts down their people and, and, you know, keeps them under their boot heels, or maybe their village is constantly under airstrikes and that kind of thing, that kind of thing can push someone into becoming radicalized. And I think that's a lot of what we see here when more and more people, you know, are responding to what the Klingons are doing by becoming more radicalized and, uh, joining the purifying flame. And what's interesting, too, is the book shows us the other side, too, because the more that the terrorists strike, the more that people on, quote unquote, our side become embittered towards the Renau as a as a as a whole. So the Prometheus, of course, has a Renau crew member aboard. And there are other factors at work. We've we've got this radiation that's also pushing people to become more aggressive. But at the same time, you know, just because of what's happening a lot of people are suspicious of him and he becomes the subject of a number of, you know, racist and, and 
that those kind of sentiments as well. So I like that it's not just our side and their side. Both sides are kind of going through this. And I, you know, I think there's kind of something to be learned there. So we're talking earlier about Klingons and how they're represented. So now let's talk about how the Federation officers are represented. And you're right. You have a Renau officer, Jasset, on the Prometheus, and there are people that really treat him badly and treat him as if he's the enemy and that he's a terrorist just because he's a Renau. Well, then you're part of that group. You're part of the purifying flame. Now, doesn't that sound very anti-Federation, anti-Starfleet? I mean, you don't just assume somebody is a certain way because of what species they are, what planet they are, or whatever. And think about Jasset's been a member of the Federation for a period of time. He's been an officer on the Prometheus, but no one seems to remember that. They just seem to reckon, and I don't see nobody, but certain crew members look at him and say, well, now that I know that you're now and, and what they've done, then you're part of that and I'm going to treat you badly. So yeah, you can blame this radiation. Oh, it's affecting the crew, whatever. But I don't really believe that it's that the Federation is making someone prejudice mm-hmm. and have rate, uh, have bigotry and hatred in them. I feel like it's just, bringing more of that out of them Mm -hmm. (laughs) that maybe that's always there. So I think the interesting thing that, that occurred to me is that maybe these thoughts and feelings are deep inside of some Federation members because it is what being human is about. It's just that at this point in our society, in our world and within the Federation, we've learned to ignore that or mask that and just realize that it's wrong. Even though you may think it, you stop yourself and say, but I know it's not right and I'm not going to act on it. I'm not going to say anything. It's almost like with the Vulcans, the Vulcans have feelings, but they're suppressed. Mm -hmm. And this case are some Federation members have some bigotry, some hate, some prejudice, not a lot. I'm just saying some to the point that they know to suppress that because they know it's not right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I've, think I kind of got the same thing out of the book here as you did. And, you know, a lot of people would maybe push back against that and say, no, Gene Roddenberry said by the time the next generation comes, you know, people are better than that. They've grown past it. But I think I agree with you. People are people. I mean, human beings have really dark, really nasty impulses that, you know, as much as we might not want to admit it, come up from time to time. Uh, obviously it's much closer to the surface with some people than others, but, and I, and I'm speaking more of modern life than necessarily the 24th century, but even in the 24th century, I think those impulses are still there. Maybe just this little tiny voice way deep down back inside your head that, you know, this situation and this radiation whose source we'll learn a little bit about later that I suspected and I was right, but you know, kind of forces that out and into the forefront and you know it's it's a difficult subject like it's a hard thing to face that human beings can be so ugly and so cruel uh so you know when they're doing things with the klingons and showing the klingons reacting this way you kind of go oh yeah i mean that makes sense the klingons are like that but then you see the federation officers and human officers 
acting that way. And it just really makes you kind of pause and go, wow, like this really is, oh man, this is a bad situation. <laughs> well, it reminds me of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I was thinking the same, Where, yeah. you know, yeah, you know, oh, you know, the Klingon smell or whatever, you know, they were making little racial, racial comments and that too. And it's, and that always, you know, bothered me. And I know, you know, I remember hearing Gene Ronberry didn't like that part either because really, you know, we have these prejudices going on with our enterprise crew on the undiscovered country about Klingons. And yeah, in some ways you think, you know, well, they kind of have a right to feel a little bitter about the Klingons, but still come on. Um, but it, again, it's just, it, it, in a sense, it's, it's, it's being human. And in this case, you know, we have these people making these comments to the point that I don't even want to read the book. I mean, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. This is a good book and it's not that I didn't want to read it, but when you get to those parts where Federation members are saying that you just want to say, that's not the Federation. And I know there's something influencing them, but I almost don't want to hear them say that. Mm -hmm. It's very disheartening. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So stop that people. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, but no, it just, it, it brings up an interesting conversation like we're having now. At least I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know about anybody else, but I mean, I'm, yeah, this is why I like about reading books like this, that uh, it gets you thinking and that's all Star Trek. It gets you thinking and talking about these different things and not just about Jasset, but then we have a parallel going on over on the Klingon ship. So there's this white bodied, uh, Rantle, uh, being that's working on ops on the Klingon ship. He's not a Klingon, but he's this white bodied being called a Rantle and they keep calling him the Rantle. But you know what? The funny thing, he actually has a name and it's Raspin, but no one on the Klingon ship refers to him by name. They just refer to him by his race mm -hmm. or, and, or the, uh, the Klingon yeah. diminutive Jegpui. I'm guessing is how it's pronounced I, I don't speak Klingon at all but basically yeah it means like you know lesser alien outsider I believe right. like it's yeah it's a it's a racial slur basically for uh, a lower species than Klingon kind of thing and yeah and they all treat him bad yeah I mean to the point where he's you know physically abused horribly by members of the Bortus's crew and yeah, it's really it's really disturbing. So it's it's kind of what we've been talking about, but writ large. Like it's really, yeah, he's the focus of all of their rage and hatred uh, aboard that ship, basically. Yeah, and you had mentioned the engineer Ruth R O O T H, not R U T H, <laughs> but the engineer Ruth uh, physically abuses Raspin, the rental. And I mean, they even find his quarters all in disarray and, and things, you know, just torn apart and feces and just like just disgusting things that this guy has done to this rental. And of course, all oh, the radiation is affecting people and all this stuff. But the poor creature is abused and, and the captain and the first officer notice this. And, you know, they're a little upset at Ruth because, you know, this being is very helpful to the operations of the ship and to abuse them like that is just unacceptable because they need him. And I think there's a sense of from Crom and, and from his first officer that they, I don't want to say they care for this guy, but you know, 
they, I, I don't think, I think they knew things went too far, mm-hmm. you know. But at the same time, we find out that Raspin has been physically abusing himself. Mm-hmm. That even though Ruth did something to his cabin, Ruth, I mean, I'm sorry, Raspin actually was physically harming himself mm-hmm. because he has never felt worth for himself. And he views himself the way the Klingons view him. And that just really messes oh, you up. That, that was brutal. And and just for the record, it's Lieutenant Klarn is the guy that that is horribly abusive to uh Oh, I was thinking Ruth. No, yeah, Ruth is the but, security yeah. guy who basically dresses down Klarn for doing that, which mm. uh, um but yeah. I stand corrected. <laughs> no worries. I just, you know, it's something like physical abuse. I want to make sure the right guy gets the blame because that guy's a jerk. I, I oh man, the, when it got to that, like, <laughs> I'm kind of ranting now, but yeah, that part really affected me when they learned that Raspin has been um, self harming because he he's a lower officer on this ship, and everyone around him thinks he's garbage, so he thinks he's garbage as well, and you know, he takes his cues from, from the people above him and treats himself like garbage and, and physically harms himself. And it's really telling at one point when he speaks and you realize this character has never said anything in either of these novels up to this point. Like nobody, you know, he hasn't uttered a word and like they make a point of saying in the book that he hadn't spoken you know, since coming aboard until that moment. And it's just, it's so heartbreaking. And I was so, I I couldn't believe how moved I was by this. It was just, it was brutal. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say I was moved too. And we don't really learn a whole lot about this character, but it's just, I don't know. I think because they, he seems so helpless. Mm -hmm. And he's among all these Klingons and he's helping them. And it's like, why are they, you know, just kick him around and treating him like garbage? And yeah, he doesn't talk. I mean, gosh, it's just, ugh, it's just nasty. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I had the exact same reaction. It was, yeah, like physically kind of ill towards it. <laughs> yeah. And so when you see that going on and you also see Jasset, the Renau, the way he's being treated on the Prometheus. I mean, the book actually, I mean, the way we're talking about this right now, the book sounds very violent and nasty, (laughs) but it's really not like this. It's just at certain points in the book. Mm. It's not like the whole book is just everybody beating up on each other. Yeah. And I I feel like it's, it, it says some important things. Like it, it makes you uncomfortable, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not graphically so just for the sake of graphic violence, like it has some really important things to say about the human condition and, and racism and bigotry and the source of, uh, violence and that sort of thing. So, which, you know, all great Star Trek does, you know, that it tells us something about what it is to be human, to use all the cliches, (laughs) you know? So I think this, this really does continue in that tradition with a very, difficult subject matter that star trek has done a few times but you know doesn't do really often because you know we're supposed to be better now when it comes to the 24th century and maybe we're not quite as great as we think we are 
I don't think we are because then we also have different scenes that take place on Earth. Mm-hmm. So we have Lexwana Troy in Paris to meet with the president of the Federation. And while she's walking around Paris and being led astray by one of the, uh, I guess, the president's assistants trying to buy time before she has to go meet with the president, uh, they stop at a cafe in Paris and she overhears these two men talking about what's been going on with the Renau and the Prometheus out in space. I guess they've been you know, reading the news about things and they are given uh, comments that are, well, yeah, give rise to bigotry and racism mm-hmm. in the Federation. And it's like the radiation isn't affecting these guys. So why are they talking? So, I mean, even to the point that Luxana Troy stands up and starts basically yelling at them or she puts them in their place. Mm-hmm. This was interesting to me because I think even though the book doesn't spell it out early on, you get the impression that there's something about the area of space that they're in that's affecting people, you know, as the book goes on, it that's confirmed. But you kind of get the feeling like people's tempers are rising, people, you know, things are happening. But even all the way to Earth? But this is the thing. So now in the book, we go back to Earth and we see that starting to happen there. And I think that's really interesting because this is where the book, I think, really starts saying that, you know, human beings still have this really dark impact impulse within them. And it might even be that if you live so long without, uh, strife, you kind of almost maybe forget how to curb those impulses or when they come up, they're more of a surprise and and you can't really suppress them because you haven't had to. I don't know. This, this is just kind of me doing armchair psychology here. That like living on Earth, like Cisco says in Deep Space Nine, it's a paradise. You know, you look out the window of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise and there's nothing ever wrong, blah, blah, blah. And maybe because that, you know, because that's the case, maybe you forget that you're supposed to be a really good human being. And when you get these bigotry feelings, they subsume you. I don't know. Like it, that was that was shocking to me that there were people on earth espousing these uh, opinions, but at the same time, humans are humans, I guess. I don't know. I, yeah, I didn't quite know what to make of this. I wonder if things are just infectious, meaning that you've got these, these crews and that, well, we'll just concentrate mainly on the Prometheus and the radiation is bringing out more of these hostile feelings and these crew members, they talk to other people outside the ship. They're talking to, other crew members on other ships or star bases through communication devices. They're talking to family and friends back home on earth or other planets. And I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, and they put the news involved too and the reporting and all of a sudden the radiation is bringing more hostile feelings out of this crew and in their communication, it may be more hostile and all of a sudden it becomes this, virus of hostility that starts to take on through different people because once they talk to one person who's hostile about it they may become hostile about they talk to the next person so and so forth and all of a sudden it's this infection of hostility that's starting to spread throughout the federation through news and communications that's going out 
from the events of what's happening in the Renau from uh, the Prometheus and maybe even other Federation members near that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that also says something really interesting about bigotry and hatred and that sort of thing about how we maybe don't realize how much we affect the people around us. You know, you might think that you have a private little, oh, you know, bit of hatred or whatever, but, you know, people sense that and people feed off that. And, you know, that, that can spread really easily. I, as a teacher, I, like, I, as a, as a former teacher, I should say, I, I was all, I've always been a very empathetic person. And I just, when someone's upset with me, I tend to get upset and internalize that and reflect it back probably a bit more than I should. And there were times where I was teaching a class and I, I just be getting annoyed about something. And I was like, why am I getting so annoyed? And I'd realize there's, there's some kid in the front row who's having a bad day and I'm just picking up on that, you know, not saying there's any kind of Deanna Troy thing going on or anything like that. It's just people pick up these signals. People read body language without realizing it. And, and it's really easy if someone's in a really bad mood for you to get in a really bad mood yourself. And I think that that's very true. That sort of thing, once it takes root, once it takes hold, it can just spread like wildfire. And that's what, you know, <laughs> again, <laughs> it's Star Trek. We're talking about the modern day. You can totally see that uh, every day in, uh, in our, in our society here. So yeah. Oh man, this book has so much yeah. to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> it does. No, it's like you're, you're saying is there's times where I go to work, I go into the office and I'm, maybe feeling really great that day and you know i'm in a good mood i had a good night's sleep and you know my commute was lighter than normal and the weather's really nice and i don't have a lot of meetings today and i'm in a great mood and i get in and all of a sudden i'm brought down because there's people around me that seemed really stressed and they've had a bad morning already and just grumbling grumbling and after a while i'm like why am I in a bad mood now? Why am I feeling stressed? Why am I, I was in a good mood before I came in here and other, you know, it was like the majority were feeling one way. And then I just kind of been brought down to those feelings that they were having at that moment, which means I really need to go into work and really be extra happy and try to reverse <laughs> it. So everybody's having a good day, Definitely. but then everybody would hate me because I'm doing that. Like, you're just too happy. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it really is sad that it seems like a bad mood and bad attitude can spread so much easier than good, a good mood. I, I, that's my impression. I really hope that's not actually the case, but it sometimes really feels like that, that the negativity stuff, people just are really more easily to more e easily mirror it than, uh, than good feelings and happiness. I don't know. I think it's age. <laughs> <laughs> the older people are all more crabby oh i hope not <laughs> i shouldn't say that i'm one of the older people <laughs> i think that's the only reason you're allowed to say that <laughs> that's right I, dang it that's why i can say that if i said it that's probably that'd probably be bad <laughs> <laughs> well and you know that's why it's always good to find people that are positive 
that, you know, get try to be around a more positive group, you yourself will feel more positive. Positive energy. That's what mm-hmm. it takes. Absolutely. <laughs> that's why we do well together on the show. We're positive. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's not too sure about that. So I'm not going to let him bring me down. So, um... <laughs> So let's talk about the mythology here, because there is mythology involved in this book, which is nice, because I'm not one who's really that big into mythology. And I mean, I shouldn't say I'm not big into it, but, you know, I I prefer science fiction Mm. (laughs) more so than mythology. But I love it when mythology is worked into science fiction, into some stories. So in this case with the Renau, they have been working, they've been searching for a fabled world that the race was transferred off of and they were sent to Onfernan, another planet. And this was like 10,000 years ago. And they don't know why their race was moved from one planet to another. They just know that it was, but they're very interested in finding this other planet. And there's a myth that there was a guardian that had come to Iad. Is that how you would, would you call it? That was, that was my guess was Iad, but yeah. yeah. And challenged the, quote, red sun, S-O-N, leading to terrible violence. And it's on this world that the Prometheus then discovers. Well, wait, I'm going to stop right there. Spoilers. Because I, I mean, we haven't said spoilers at this point, but I think at this point we're, you know. Yeah, we're, we're pretty deep into spoilery territory. Yeah. I, I think we kind of, yeah, missed saying that. But we haven't really given away a ton yet, but we're yeah. going to now, I think. Yeah, I feel like we've. We're a little over halfway through the book and, you know, but now we're really getting to the meat of things. But then, you know, they find that uh, they find a recording from the Federation. Val- is it a Federation ship? Yeah, I think it, it was is. a Constitution class starship. The That's USS right. Valiant. It was Constitution class. So it was the Valiant and uh, the crew had gone mad. They've seen the recording where this the crew is going mad on the ship and going nuts and crazy. And it kind of reminded me in some ways of uh, the recording that they found on Star Trek Beyond from the Franklin. Mm, yeah. Even though they didn't see the crew going mad, but eventually the crew kind of went crazy nuts in a sense. It kind of reminded me of that, of finding an old recording of, of the ship. But uh, I, th- I found the whole mythology, and they go deep into it, and Spock is here, and he's kind of explaining the story and how it connects and such. And I'm not going to go too deep into that because that's come up here in a moment, but I just found it to be interesting to hear this mythology out there that some of the Renau believe in and, and some don't and find it kind of hokey. And of course the Klingons find it kind of ridiculous themselves, but I think there's some actual weight to, to the story of what happened to their people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting when, I, I love the exploration of civilizations and uh, even though I don't, you know, there's no great mythological beliefs that I really buy into myself. I like kind of the root of truth that may have given rise to legends and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I, I like it when the story takes this, um, this turn here, you know, with this, uh, the, the red sun and the guardian and that sort of thing. And you mentioned the recording from the Valiant. There's, a, you know, I had a theory of what might be going on and it seemed like, oh, I wonder, this seems really familiar. You know, if you've watched the original series, maybe there's a an episode where, you know, some of this stuff um, has come up before. 
And this recording you're talking about, this is another part of the book that I found really disturbing. This uh, recording of the bridge of the Valiant and you know, there's a guy standing on the captain's chair with an antiquated weapon killing people. And he's got a shotgun basically, and he's blowing crew members away. And the recording is being made by this, um, I forget her name, but she's a woman ensign on the Valiant. And, uh, she's chronicling what's going on and saying, you know, I don't know if anyone's going to get this, but you know, this is what's happening. And, and, you know, we're all going to die and all this stuff. And it's sent out on a recorder beacon like uh, like we see, I think kind of like what we see in the episode where No Man Has Gone Before, this little beacon that has the ship's logs and stuff that Prometheus finally finds now, you know, a century later. And uh, yeah, this was a really disturbing part of the book, I thought. Uh, I'm, I'm putting off the revelation of the the what's going on here because I think it's so cool. <laughs> Well, I think I think it's time for the revelation, and I think you should go ahead and say it. Okay. Well, it is the Beta Twelve A entity. Does that does that mean anything to anyone? Probably not. It needs a better name. <laughs> <laughs> but if you remember the episode, well, I, I should say it's not the same entity. It's something more powerful, but it does the same thing. And you may remember the episode, The Day of the Dove in Star Trek's third season, the original series. It's that little spinny light that uh, causes Kirk's crew and Kang's crew to fight each other with swords. It turns all the phasers into swords. They fight each other. And when they die, they come back to life. And it's going to be this perpetual war that goes on and on. And it feeds off hatred and violent emotions and prejudice. You might remember Kirk had that, my God, are we even experiencing racial prejudice? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, because because that's something that's unheard of in the Federation, uh, supposedly. (laughs) We've we've talked a little maybe differently here, but, um, you know, and it's... It's something like that that seems to be uh, fueling all of this. And what was really exciting was a few episodes ago in Literary Treks, episodes 195, 198, and 201, we talked about the Q Continuum trilogy, which also featured that little spinning entity. And what's really cool is this book actually references those events and ties that all together continuity-wise. So... That was just a little thrill for me as uh, as someone who loves the novels, obviously. But, you know, the fact that I kind of guessed what it might have been and that I was right, and then they tied it into other novels that I really like. I was just, the entire last, like, third of this book, I was just giddy. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> this whole episode is Dan being giddy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm with you. I, I I don't remember what point in the book, but I was thinking, you know, how everybody's getting aggressive. And I thought, oh, yeah, like Day in the Dove. But I didn't really think they were going there. I just, you know, it was just like I said earlier about Star Trek Beyond. There was, oh, yeah. There's little things sometimes that, that remind me of certain episodes or movies or even something in a book. But yeah, as soon as they identified what it was, my, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's what it is. And my next thought was, we just saw this that that long ago when we read the Q Continuum trilogy. I was, and I remember thinking, wouldn't it be cool if this ties in really well with that? And then I started to realize they actually <laughs> refer to that 
series of books. And I was like, so glad that we read those books when we did, mm-hmm. because it's still fresh in my mind. It hasn't been that long ago. And I had never read the, the that trilogy before. Oh, wow. So <laughs> had we read this? Yeah. So had we read this book uh before I got to that trilogy, I would have been lost to that. Like I would have been, that wouldn't have made any sense to me. I probably would have thought, is this in another book? Cause I, you know, it's not in a TV episode and that seems like they're referring to something else that went on or stuff. And that's what made, yeah, I was the same with you. I was just giddy with like, Oh my gosh, we we're getting, you know, this, this ties to that, you know? And it's, I mean, it's one thing when we read these books and it ties to something in an episode or, or a movie, cause it happens often. Mm-hmm. But when it refers to another book series that it's not been marketed as a continuation of or that you're not ever expecting it would refer to that, mm-hmm. that's when it really is a fanboy's dream. Yeah, especially a book series <laughs> that came out, too. <laughs> you know, quite a while ago. Like, yeah, that, that's pretty great. I love I love that. I thought it was just a really nice bit of attention to detail. It was really welcome. And we talked about that on our previous episode when we talked about the first book in Prometheus. Uh, there's a lot of connections to the novel continuity. There's a lot of connection between the pocketbooks and the gallery books by Simon Schuster. But then there's also um, this book is by Titan Books, so it's a different publisher. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways you would think eh, they may not be able to go there or may not want to go there because you know they're referring to all these other books from different publishers. But they heavily rely on the continuity that's been set up in the novels so i mean it's it's a lot of fun for me mm-hmm. especially because i do a show called literary treks where we talk about this stuff all the time <laughs> <laughs> right who would have thought that we'd be excited about references to books within a book that's you know feel like right. we're on that pimp my book <laughs> show or something yo dog we heard you like books so we put books in your books <laughs> <laughs> It's a pretty yeah. old meme, but you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I like, um, and again, if you haven't read, you know, these previous books, you're not going to be lost. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's more enhanced when you know where it's from. Yeah, It just exactly. makes it more fun. Yeah, it's not, the the plot of this book by no means hinges on anything that happened in that trilogy whatsoever. It's kind of basically almost a throwaway, like, oh, this is uh, very similar to that entity that we encountered in the uh, third year of our mission. And according to Starfleet, there it's also been encountered more recently when the Enterprise-E attempted to breach the galactic barrier in this year kind of thing. So it's it's just a nice little name drop almost. And they also give the the entity the name that it had in that novel, which... I just can't pronounce because it's an asterisk inside of a pair of brackets. So I have no idea how you would pronounce that. They even in the book say that it sounds like some sort of computer generated sound or something, but (laughs) what does it sound? I guess there's no audio books of that series. Are there? (laughs) Ooh, yeah, I don't think so. I wonder if there's a going to, is there an audio book of this book though? Mm, I don't think so. At least not in English that I'm aware of. Darn it. Unless they refer to it as the spinny, really asterisk thingy in brackets. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it doesn't, it's easier to call it the Beta 12A entity, I guess. That's how the Star Trek Encyclopedia names it. But, you know, I think it needs a better name than either of the two options, unfortunately. 
Well, in the book, they do refer to the events in the Day of the Dove, and they say, oh, yeah, and then the crew just laughed. That's how you, they were telling the Klingons, hey, you just laugh. And I thought, oh, this is going to be hilarious. They're going to tell this whole crew of you know the Klingons to start laughing, but they didn't go there. Yeah. They, no one said about doing the whole laughing thing. <laughs> you almost wanted that, like, that's how it was Spock handled. stand there saying, so are we trying the laughing thing? No. Okay, well, <laughs> moving on. <then. laughs> just, just don't slap my back while you're laughing, please. That happened once before. <laughs> awesome. Wow. But yeah, is there anything else we want to cover in this? I feel like I feel like there was a quite a bit in here, but we went through it pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I don't think there's a ton more. I did want to say um, one of the things I liked, oddly enough, was the use of Luxana Troy in the story. I think she had a really interesting role, and I like whenever her character shows up and it's not ridiculous and over the top and she feels like a very uh, grounded, real person. And there's one scene in the book, which is really cool where Waxana visits Picard on his family vineyard in France. And it's actually just a really touching scene because you know that Waxana has, you know, had feelings for Picard in the past and it's just, I don't know. I really liked the scene. It was the first time that I felt um, this real connection between Luxana and Jean-Luc, which is odd. There's nothing really there, but uh, on Picard's part, certainly, but there's a respect there. And I really liked that Picard was dealing with Luxana without rolling his eyes and saying, oh, this tiresome woman and all this stuff, you know, it was, it was this really nice kind of reunion that I I thought was really just a nice moment in the book. Yeah. It felt like it was two people who were old friends Mm -hmm. who haven't seen each other in a long time. And it wasn't, it wasn't over the top. It wasn't funny. It wasn't silly or, you know, yeah. Or rolling eyes. It was just more of a sign of respect and, and as if they're, relationship with each other has matured and they're more civil and grown up about things yeah, in a sense. You absolutely. Know? Um, but you're right. It wasn't, she's not played in this to be humorous. I mean, she has a few humorous moments here and there, mm-hmm. but I mean, they're just, but she does feel more real, more human. Yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. More basil. <laughs> she wouldn't like you to <laughs> say that, but yeah. <laughs> she reminds me of her husband (laughs) (laughs) sure (laughs) so yeah so that's the root of all rage the second prometheus book so dan how would you rate this book well i i really enjoyed this one um it's it's hard to rate i i think it's quite good like i'm really into this story i think much more than i thought i would be um I I don't want to just willy nilly throw around five star ratings because, you know, I feel like that's reserved for just really top shelf, amazing books. This one does approach that at times. There were times where I found myself really surprised with how deep this book got with its message and that sort of thing. Um, I, I think I would have to give this one four and a half Klingons on the high council who are, mad at Martok because he won't go to war with the Renau right away out of five. 
<laughs> There's one who has mixed feelings about it, but he keeps quiet. <laughs> That's where the half Klingon <laughs> comes from. But uh, no, it's a really excellent novel. It's really great. Um, I've seen some people online talking about how um, many characters outside of the Prometheus crew it uses, like Spock and Luxana and Picard, and kind of saying like, oh, why does it do that? It's just name dropping and cameoing. I I kind of agree when it comes to Spock. I'm not really sure why he's there, why he showed up in the first book. And but I really like the use of Luxana. I thought that was really great. So I think that's where I knock the half star off is I, I'm still not sure it's really warranted using the character of Spock, but it's still really, really, really good story. I'm really enjoying this. I know uh, when we read the first book and we reviewed it, I remember stating that there's a lot of these cameos in there, like you're mentioning, and sometimes it can go in, in some books it could go a little too far where it starts to almost seem like some really bad fan fiction or something. And not that all fan fiction is bad, but some is, but <laughs> you know, it's, I didn't feel like it went too far. I feel the same way here, except when it comes to Spock. You're right. I don't really understand why Spock is really here. I mean, for most of the time, he's on the uh, Bordis, the Klingon ship, mm-hmm. and Alexander Ruseko is on the Prometheus. So I guess you could say, you know, the Federation's got a representative on the Klingon ship, and the Klingons have a represent- representation on the Federation ship. But, you know, Spock at this point really isn't a full-fledged practicing ambassador. He's so busy dealing with things on Romulus, you know, Mm -hmm. but outside of that though, I mean, it's fine. Yeah. It seems a little off sometimes when Spock comes back into the room, I'm like, why is he there again? Wait, what? Uh, Okay. Whatever. He's there. But um, outside of that, I mean, I think it's a great book, especially if you read other Star Trek novels because of these little nods to other books that we mentioned about. So I would, I'm, I feel the same rating as you, Dan. It's a, it's a very high level of radiation, but not to the point that we're totally losing our minds. No, that's good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> also, um, we mentioned, I just want to say at the top of the show, we were talking about when the originals came out. And that was one of the things is uh, they they came out two years ago in 2016. And that's one of the reasons they do have so many of those other characters in the book was because it was like a 50th anniversary uh, thing took took place during the 50th anniversary year, uh, according to the author on Trek BBS. So that's kind of why they wanted to use Spock and Luxana and and all that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, I just don't really feel the use of Spock is really warranted yet. Maybe we'll, maybe that'll change in yeah. book three though. So I'm yeah, glad you said yet. Cause I was, when you were saying about earlier, I was thinking, well, yeah, maybe it'll pay off in book three. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. We shall see that's coming up in a future episode of literary tracks at the end of 2018. Awesome. Well, I think uh, we're both, pretty impressed with the way the Prometheus miniseries is going so far. I think uh, I I have to echo again, something that I said during the feature that this is really 
I'm I'm pleasantly surprised by this. I I don't know why, but I didn't have huge expectations going into this, and I don't know if that's just because they're not from the usual publisher that I usually like by authors that I usually love. Instead, it's something new and something different. Uh, so that's probably a failing on my part that I wasn't anticipating that these would be as good as they have proven to be. I'm really enjoying this series. Now, I'm in the same camp exactly. Yeah, different publisher, different authors, different country. I mean, I don't know what we're going to get. It's going to be something could be something totally different. Doesn't even fit into any of the continuity that we've read, which is fine with me. It doesn't all have to fit in the same continuity, but I I've really enjoyed it. I think it's been great. And I'm glad that it's been translated to English because when those books came out, I was like, I wonder if I can get some kind of translator service that will translate those books to English. Cause I'm, I'm curious. I want to read those and now I get to, and it's so much fun. So I'm so glad we're talking about it, but you know, it's not the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM. And so here's some of the other things we're discussing elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! Do you have to have the stick to be the grand proxy? The scepter? Yeah. I see it as a walking <laughs> stick. <laughs> um, is that supposed to be the grand negus's um, scepter? Is that the actual one? Or oh my that's a gosh. replica, of course, but is it supposed to be the actual one? I don't know, but what it reminds me of totally is old Biff... From Back to the Future, old Biff, <laughs> yes. with his his cane that he hits people on the head with. That is totally it. Hello! <laughs> McFly! Think McFly, think. Standard orbit. People are coming over and they're introducing people to him. And it's my turn. And he goes, Steve, uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy, I want you to meet the, the host of the convention. This is Stephen Lance. And he goes, pleased to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, Mr. Dewan. And he goes, hi, Steve. Nice to meet you. He's like... What? What? <laughs> you, mean, you mean you don't talk like that? The 602 Club. In particular, I noticed that the most with either Elastigirl or Violet, because it's sort of like you and I were talking about before the show, Helen, Elastigirl, really shows that she's Elastigirl not only in what she does as a superhero, but in showing the things that a regular mom has to deal with, you know, whether you're a single mom or, you know, a a big family, it's something that um, traditionally they're trying to show that um, a a parent goes through. Warp 5. Right, because Frankenstein himself, like, it doesn't really mistreat the monster, right? They've got him locked up, chained up and whatnot, right? Because he's, they don't know what to do with him, I guess. Like, now that I've made this corpse, well, now what, right? Like, like yeah. you know, it's not like a puppy. Never right? thinking like, about the end game. Just like all those, you know, master villains. It's like, yeah, you, uh, you rule the world and then what? Right. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. And check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a star rating and written review, much like someone has recently, which we'll get to. 
Uh, if you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of the Trek FM shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3, fi- MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each and every week, you can do that by becoming a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm. And you'll get all the details and you'll get perks, including early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. We even do a roundtable, which I'm hosting this month about Voyager. And you can join in the fun on that. And uh, you can also get more through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. And it requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. And we really appreciate your support. Again, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. And as Dan was mentioning, leaving reviews, that really helps people to find our show on Apple Podcasts. And so we have a recent review here from Jerusalem Jack. And Jack says, I have been a Trek book reader for a long time and a listener listener of Trek FM for a while also. Literary Treks is my favorite one to listen to. Dan and Bruce and Matt and Chris from before are terrific. You guys do a great job. I always get pumped to read more Trek after listening to you all. Keep up your great work. Whoa, my chair almost broke. Ah, oh. <laughs> I got so excited about that review, my chair broke. I'm just jumping out of my seat. <laughs> but anyway, it was five stars, and we really appreciate that, Jerusalem Jack, and I'm with you on that. You know, it's like... I used to listen to Matt and Chris and get all excited. And then Dan came on and what's got me more excited about reading Trek books, even though I'm always excited about reading Trek books, it got me even more. And now that I'm on the show, I'm even more excited to read Trek books because I get to talk about them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we're in the same boat there. So thank you so much for that. That's really awesome. Really great to hear. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate that. And we'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is, of course, the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel. And I think by now you know how to spell Babel, but just in case you don't, that's B-A-B-E-L. Type that into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter. We're at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you can also find us on Goodreads. We have a group there, Literary Treks group. We have our bookshelf that shows all the books that we've covered on previous shows, as well as what we're currently reading coming up on future shows. So we have conversations going on. Uh, It's a great place to meet other Star Trek book readers. And so just search for Literary Treks and Goodreads and click to join the group. And we'd also like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamotella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not fighting the Klingons because the radiation is affecting your mood, where can people find you? Well, you know, I've said some things in this podcast about Klingons, and I just want everyone out there to know, I mean every word of it, those stinking war... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
Whew. And here I thought you were giddy. The, ra- the radiation just got to me for a second, but I just need to control myself. Um, so I'm going to confine my rants to Twitter because apparently that's all you do on Twitter these days. I'm at Kurtrats. <laughs> that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions and on facebook.com slash Productions, and of course in the Babel Conference. And Bruce, when you're not relaxing after a long shift on the Prometheus by getting a drink down in Starboard 8, where can we find you? Well, if you don't find me down there, <laughs> excuse me, drinking, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about, of all things, Star Wars. There you go. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. If I'm not saying anything, I'm there. Believe me, I'm reading everything. So every day I'm in the Babel Conference reading stuff at least. So, but anyway, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number 